In this video, we're going to be taking a look at five supernatural mysteries that are still unexplained. So from a possible case of spontaneous combustion to a UFO abduction, here are five supernatural mysteries that we need to solve. Now, before we begin, we just wanted to let you know that we've got two brand new documentaries up on our Patreon page, Unit 731, and a Murderous Minds episode on John Wayne Gacy. To not only show your support for the channel, but also get access to all of our exclusive documentaries, then head over to Patreon and join. It'll be the best $2 you've spent all month. And now, hit those lights, sit back, and enjoy. Corporal Armado Valdez. At 4.15 a.m. on April 25th, 1977, in the deserts of northern Chile, 20-year-old Corporal Armando Valdez and his seven men sat around a campfire, swapping stories in an attempt to stay awake. Suddenly, one of the members of the military patrol unit spotted something strange. Private Rosales turned to the other men and told them that he just witnessed two bright violet lights descending from the skies illuminating the area below them. One dropped near the foothills of the Andes mountain range, while the other fell just 500 yards away. Each one of the members looked and saw the same bizarre violet glows that had just been described to them. Armando was on his feet instantly, ordering his men to smother the fire and take up arms. The light closest to the men began to move in the air before them. A red light was visible at each end of the glow, but it made no sound. The desert was also eerily silent around the group. Armando stepped forward alone to approach the light and demanded that the oddity identify itself. Then suddenly, the corporal vanished. For 15 minutes, he was gone, as if he disappeared by magic. When he finally returned, he reappeared before his men without a single noise, looking disorientated and disheveled. As he stumbled towards them, he said, you don't know who you are or where we come from, but we will be back soon before collapsing and falling into unconsciousness. The rest of the group carried the corporal to the camp base and noticed that as well as looking dehydrated and unkept, he suddenly had the equivalent of several days worth of beard growth. This was unusual because Armando was always well kept and clean shaven. Over the shoulders of the men, the strange violet lights ascended, disappearing into the early morning sky. Armando woke at 7am, announcing to his men that it was 4.30am and time to go. It was at this point that everyone realised his watch had stopped at 4.30. But strangely, the date now read April 30th, which was five days away. In the immediate aftermath of the corporal's strange experience, he expressed an interest in undergoing hypnosis to regain his memories. Armando described how he felt, that something was calling his attention and attracting him, but he couldn't explain much further. The then president and commander-in-chief, Augusto Pinochet, forbade both the press and UFO investigators from speaking with Armando and his men. He claimed it was the responsibility of the military to carry out any and all testing on them. However, a few investigators managed to slip through the cracks, and when asked about the story, Armando told them he couldn't recall anything about what had happened to him. In a later interview in 1983, he said cryptically, I shall talk one day. 
Then, almost two decades later, in 2002, he was questioned by the Institute of Hispanic Ufology. When asked if he had been abducted, Armando said, in the context, I would say no, before adding that he wasn't sucked up and taken by a spacecraft somewhere else. When probed further about where he was in the 15 minutes he was missing, he replied, I was always present and looking at my men, and claimed that he even heard them speaking to one another. Armando also explained that he felt it would be easier if he had been the victim of a stereotypical alien abduction, saying the truth is harder to explain than a lie. However, that same year, he decided to recant his story, claiming that the lights had appeared, but they'd been hidden behind a wall whilst his men went to relieve themselves. He was apparently attempting to play a prank on the other members of the group, but the other men continued to support and back up the original version of the story. When questioned immediately after the incident, Armando did not bring up this version of events, not even when he was spoken about poorly in the media. So why did he recant his story all those years later? Many believe he did this because in 2002, he was a bishop and was heavily religious. It's believed he changed his story to fit with his newfound religion, but nobody knows for sure. UFO sightings in the area continued in the years following the corporal's incident. Although the Chilean government acknowledges the case and the UFO activity that came with it, they have simply described it as unexplained. After the bizarre event, Armando continued to serve in the military until 1999, when he finally retired. However, his men opted to leave after the bizarre experience. It seems we may never know the truth about what really happened that April night in 1977. If you want to know more about UFOs and aliens, then head over to our channel, Destination Declassified, where we exclusively talk in depth about unidentified flying objects, alien abductions, and extraterrestrials in general. The Odin Fire Poltergeist. In 1940, the tiny town of Odin, Indiana was peaceful. There was very little crime and almost nothing exceptional ever happened there. Boasting a population of around 958 people, it was by all accounts very ordinary. That is until one day in 1940. On June 21st, William Hackler finished his breakfast and left his house to start on the day's chores. But his attention was drawn towards smoke, which was suddenly gushing out of the building's upper story windows. William, who lived with his wife, Minnie, and their five children, was terrified. He ran back into the house and went upstairs, where he saw a fire consuming the wall beneath one of the windows. Odin in the 1940s was a rural and sparsely populated area, and as a result, electricity was not common in the buildings there. This ruled out that the fire had started due to faulty wiring. The stove was also not lit, and there were no controlled fires in the house. The Hackler family quickly called the volunteer fire service, who attended the scene and made short work of the blaze. But the fire department had barely left when they were called back to the residence once more, as Minnie had found a fire on her feather bed, with the flames having originated from the mattress. Fast-acting firemen managed to extinguish it before it could spread. Throughout the day, fires began and consumed objects and parts of the house. In one case, coveralls burst into flames and a bedspread randomly combusted in front of a handful of witnesses. As a flame was extinguished on the roof, another started, charring the curtains. It was unlike anything that had ever been seen before in the town, 
No one knew how to explain what was happening in the hackler's property. The final fire occurred just after 11 p.m. After that, for whatever reason, the burning finally stopped. Over 100 firefighters put out 28 fires that day, and no cause was ever determined. Again, there was no electricity and no burning stove. There have been many theories about what might have happened over the years, from magnetic fields to leaking gases from unused wells, to pranks by the couple's children, but none have enough evidence to conclusively prove what happened one way or another. More modern theories suggest that the fires were a result of the spontaneous combustion phenomena. In 1941, an insurance company used the heckler's story as a way to advertise home insurance and said the incident was the work of the Odin fire poltergeist. On July 4th, the Hackler family had their property demolished, they built a new home nearby, and fortunately, never had any run-ins with the so-called fire poltergeist again. The Mausoleum of Nina Craigmiles Nina Craigmiles was born on August 5th of 1864 in Cleveland, Tennessee, much to the delight of her parents. She was doted on and adored by her family, particularly her father, John. The Craigmiles were extremely wealthy. During the Civil War, they had supplied food and other material goods to both sides, allowing them to accumulate a nice fortune. But luck wasn't entirely on their side. In October of 1871, Nina, just seven years old, died in a tragic accident. She was out carriage riding with her grandfather, and they somehow swerved into the path of an oncoming train. The details are hazy, but it's believed that Nina had the reins and was riding too fast. Her maternal grandfather was thrown from the carriage, and although he was injured, he did survive. Distraught and heartbroken, the Craig Miles family grieved for years after the little girl's passing. Shortly after her demise, John decided to build not only a grand mausoleum for his daughter, but also a church. The mausoleum, made of white Italian marble, was constructed behind St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It was supposed to feature a statue of the seven-year-old, but the structure had been shipped on the HMS Titanic and never made it to the US. In recent years, the only changes that the church building has undergone has been the additions of electricity, heating and air conditioning. The mausoleum itself is considered to be a beautiful piece of architecture, featuring gothic spires and ornate carvings of angels holding lambs and crosses. The exact date is not documented, but at some point after the mausoleum was built and Nina's ashes were placed inside it, strange marks began to appear, marring the perfect stark white marble. The eerie red stains resemble blood and are still visible today. Their exact cause is unknown. They've baffled locals and experts alike, and efforts to remove the blemishes have failed. According to local legend, the stained blocks of marble were replaced, but the marks always returned. Reports of supernatural incidents in the area are abundant, most notably Nina's spirit is said to play nearby. John and his wife had another child after Nina passed away, but the little boy lived only a few hours. In 1899, John passed away from blood poisoning following a fall. His wife lived several more decades and remarried, but was struck by a car in 1928. The Craig Miles family is so steeped in tragedy that it seems no wonder that the mausoleum 
is the site of so many supernatural activities. The Hexham Wolf In 1904, in the rural farming area of Hexhamshire in Northumberland, England, faced a bizarre series of events in an incident involving a canine known as the Hexham Wolf. That year, something started to attack and maul the sheep of local farmers. Sometimes the bodies were eaten or partially dragged off, but sometimes it seemed as if whatever was taking the lives of the farm animals was doing so for sport. Upon examining the carcasses of the animals, it was determined that the damage was done by a large dog or wolf, but the area hadn't had wolves in centuries. Every night, three to five animals were dying, and farmers began to house the creatures indoors, so they were out of harm's way. Then witnesses began to come forward, each one reporting that they'd seen a massive wolf-like creature prowling around the area. As a result of these claims, in early December, a hunting committee was put together, which the townspeople named the Hexham Wolf Committee. It soon came to the attention of the group that a local man was actually keeping and raising wolves on the down low, and he admitted that a four-month-old wolf had recently escaped from his enclosure. Over the coming weeks, many wolf hunts were organized, and by mid-December, they had tracked a large, imposing creature after it had carried out a huge slaughter of sheep. However, it managed to escape although it later returned, unbeknownst to the committee, to drag a carcass away. Meanwhile, the sightings of the beast continued, but they were inconsistent. Its fur was sometimes described as black, sometimes grey, or sometimes tan, and it was even, at one point, believed to actually be a big cat. This led to much speculation that there was more than one creature on the loose, and the townspeople began to panic. Although hunting hounds were used, the dogs couldn't pick up a solid trail, and the wolf remained elusive. Then on December 29th, a large grey wolf carcass was found in two pieces near a railway line. It had been severed in half by a train. The wolf Rira, whose four-month-old had escaped, claimed that the beast was much too big to be his, and was most certainly a full-grown adult wolf. But if it wasn't the breeders, then where did it come from? Although nobody knew, and nobody had answers, the sheep killings finally came to a stop. And that should be where the story ends, but it doesn't. Several decades later in 1971, two brothers dug up two stone heads the size of tennis balls in their back garden in Hexham. The odd carvings are known as the Hexham heads, and are thought to be cursed. After their discovery, the brothers reported supernatural occurrences in their home, from the heads going missing and reappearing in different places, to bottles being thrown across the kitchen. They also claimed to see a half-man, half-beast enter their bedroom one night, before it escaped out the window and disappeared into the dark. An expert in Celtic artifacts, Dr. Anne Ross, studied the Stoneheads. Afterwards, she claimed that she awoke one night from a nightmare to see a huge six-foot half-animal, half-man, covered in thick black fur standing over her. The creature left out the bedroom door, and Anne said she ran after it. However, it vanished behind the house. It was apparently seen once again fleeing her daughter's home. Anne also reported feeling a cold presence in the house, that her study door would burst open on its own accord, and that she saw the creature numerous other times. Subsequently, she decided the artifacts were cursed and got rid of them. 
In the months afterwards, there were many scattered reports about sightings of wolves and werewolf-like creatures wandering the countryside. There are many more questions than answers in the case of the Hexham Wolf. What connection did the Stoneheads have to the creature? What even was the Hexham Wolf, and where did it come from? Was it a case of mass hysteria, or was something more sinister stalking the community? What do you think? Christine and Nick Scubbish. On June 5th, 1994, 23-year-old Christine Scubbish departed from her family home near Sacramento, California with her three-year-old son, Nick. Christine planned to head to Carson City, Nevada to start a new life together with her child. She'd just got a new job and was looking forward to providing a better life for Nick. The plan was that the pair would stay for a while with one of Christine's friends, but they never arrived at their destination. Concerned, their friend called Christine's family, who told her that she had left on time on June 5th. After hanging up, Christine's stepfather called the police and filed a missing persons report. Five days later, a woman named Deborah Hoyt was driving with her husband along Highway 50 in the Sierra Nevada mountain range in California late at night. All of a sudden, she was shocked to spot a naked woman lying at the side of the road, facing into the traffic. The woman was described as looking ghastly and pale. The couple were scared and worried, but skeptical that it was a practical joke or maybe a carjacking trap, so they stopped at the next phone booth and called the authorities. Within minutes, two police cruisers arrived on the scene. They scanned the area for the unknown woman, but found nothing. The next day, Deputy Rich Strasser headed out to investigate the scene for himself. The particular stretch of road in which the woman was seen is known as Bullion Bend, and is considered dangerous. In daylight, Deputy Strasser found a child's black tennis shoe at the side of the road. Next to it was a steep 40-foot embankment. At the bottom of the ravine, he saw the crumpled remains of Christine's car. Its roof was torn off. The deputy hurried down to check on the bodies inside. Unfortunately, Christine was dead. Nick was naked and curled up in the fetal position next to her. He had a faint pulse and took a breath when it was checked. The three-year-old had spent five days alone in the car next to the body of his mother. Police believed that at around 2 a.m. on June 6th, Christine had fallen asleep at the wheel and the car had plunged off the road. The steep embankment hid the accident from the view of passing vehicles. According to doctors, if Nick had not been rescued, he would likely have only survived a few more hours. Even today, the circumstances that led to Nick's rescue defy explanation. Christine was still in her seatbelt and was fully clothed, meaning it couldn't possibly have been her that Deborah Hoyt had seen a few days prior. The mother of one is also believed to have died on impact or shortly after. Both Deborah and the Scubbish family believe that Christine's spirit was what saved her son that day. As an adult, Nick was interviewed for a paranormal TV show and he described seeing a bright light surrounding the car following the accident. He also recalled seeing a woman standing near the road that he believes was his mother, trying to get someone's attention so that he could be rescued. Stranger still, Christine's aunt had a dream about the pair being involved in a car accident in the months before it happened. She also saw the number 16, which was the number for a mile marker near the site. Over two decades later, nobody can really explain what Deborah saw that night on the highway, 
or what saved Nick's life. What do you think? So that's it for this video. We hope you've enjoyed, and as always, we'll see you in the next one.